Hi, I'm Paige Peters, founder and CTO of Rapid Radicals Technology, and I beat the often path by developing a technology that can treat wastewater about 20 times faster than conventional treatment. Our technology is something I developed in grad school. I started a company to commercialize it and transfer it to the market, building a wonderful team along the way in our hopes and dreams to improve water quality and public health for communities in the United States and across the world. Did you know that when it rains, billions and trillions of gallons of raw, untreated sewage, that's right, sewage, goes into stuff like lakes, rivers, and oceans near you. It's actually a tremendous problem without an easy solution. Well, joining me today is the founder and CTO of Rapid Radicals. I'm talking to Paige Peters, a brilliant woman who has dedicated her life to this extremely niche and unsexy problem that genuinely affects every single person on the planet. Rapid Radical's innovative high-rate wastewater treatment technology originally was developed to address combined sewer overflows for municipal sewerage districts. And there's a huge talk of who has impacted this the most, what is the cost of this, and why the old methods simply won't work anymore. It's a brilliant concept. She's a brilliant woman. This is going to be a real fun one. I'm Ross Palmer. This is the Beat the Often Path podcast. And joining us right now is Paige Peters. You know, I got to imagine, first of all, welcome to the show. I got to imagine there's a lot of people listening. They're tuning in. They've got their cup of coffee. It's time for a podcast. Nothing screams I'm ready to face the day in the morning like talking about raw sewage, right? Who Who isn't excited about this topic? <laughs> I know I am. Well, I, I am not the right person to ask that question to because it is my absolute favorite thing to talk about. Well, actually, and me too, because I'd like to remind, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> interestingly. Say, I'd like to remind it, the audience that you can't say raw sewage without saying Ross. So anytime they think of sewage, they have to think of my face and voice. That's what I'm asking of them. Uh, well, I actually think that's great branding. And I wonder if maybe we can work with good. with you on that. To Yeah, there's to a partnership that. there somewhere. Well, you can't really start your day without contributing to my research. So actually That's at my true. PhD defense, um, you know, my technology is treating raw sewage. It's dilute raw sewage during storm events to eliminate that raw sewage going into storm, into waterways. But I thanked everybody in the audience for contributing to my research during my PhD defense because they did. Got a, I got a lot of and samples to, over a lot of time. Yeah, and you have to thank Everybody, all of the patrons of Taco Bell for contributing extra to your research. Uh, some people have mm-hmm. contributed multiple times in a given day. All right, let's get our <laughs> minds out of the gutter or into the gutter, as it were, because it's gutters that we're talking about because it's this raw, unfiltered sewage that goes through the gutters, goes through the pipes, and it is coming out in Great Lakes, rivers, oceans, everywhere. So what is this problem, broadly speaking? Broadly speaking, it's it's a very complex problem, and at Rapid Radicals, we've worked hard to find the way to describe it in a way that we, kind of allows you to contextualize the problem and visualize how bad it is without it being like, oh, it's just so big, I can't even fathom it. Because the reality is, it's so big, it's hard to fathom, but it's our job to bring people into this story because it affects everybody. Everybody, like we just talked about, everybody contributes to it. But uh, broadly speaking, the problem... I'll focus on that in the states here, is that every year 
850 billion gallons of untreated sewage go into, are discharged into our lakes and rivers due to sewer overflows that occurred during intense storm events. And these storm events are only getting more intense and more frequent with increasing concerns around climate change, increasing urbanization, population growth. But 850 billion gallons is equivalent to 170,000 Mississippi rivers filled with poop water. So we like to say, if you've ever wondered how much a shit ton is, well, that's it. And it's a problem that's getting worse because we haven't been adequately investing in our infrastructure because it's something that's really hard for people to understand. It's hard to get your head around it, but you can't live in a city without infrastructure. And that's what, what we're, the problem that we're trying to solve. And as we have this platform, trying to engage other people into it, talking about it in a way that people can understand. That's not just like, oh, that's a bigger problem than me. Because it's not. This, is, this problem is as big as each of us as individuals. Right. And, and let this be a lesson to anybody who's ever gone swimming in the ocean and has wondered whether it was okay or not to pee in the water, that the government is doing literally nothing. <laughs> I mean, you want to believe that somehow that all of this stuff is being processed or sanitized. You don't want to believe that untreated sewage is just dumping into the waterway. Here in California, there's this bit of wisdom that suggests that you shouldn't go surfing after a rainstorm. So are you saying that that is true in not just coastal places, but places near any waterway? We say the same thing here in Milwaukee. Wait, I mean, there's a, there's a val, there is a way in which nature heals herself. So we put sewage out into a waterway. It will ultimately either be diluted, be broken down by organisms, microorganisms in the water. It'll wash away from shore to where it's no longer really a problem for human interaction. That will happen. And we usually say 24 to 72 hours, depending on how bad the storm is, you know, in Wisconsin, we just had a sewer overflow here in Milwaukee, not necessarily because, and it's really not as much of an infrastructure or a sewerage district mismanagement as it is the fact that everything is changing. So the overflow that we had two weeks ago here was because it's February. <laughs> uh, it was February and we also had snow melt and the ground is frozen. So the ground's not taking up water like it used to or like it normally would during a springtime when the ground is thawed. So I think it's also really important to note that here in Milwaukee, and I work with the Milwaukee Metropolitan Sewerage District on the work that we do. So um, they funded my graduate research, some of the first pilot efforts that we did, and they're a great advocate for the work that we're doing and helping them meet their goal of these zero sewer overflows and zero basement backups. But they still treat about 99.2% of all the water that exists within our sewer area. So that's a, it's just demonstrating that it's so much water, it's bigger than what we can fathom, and we just have an infrastructure that people don't want rates to go up. But unfortunately, we're getting to a point where you have to be a lot more accountable than you were in the past, especially if you want to if you want to enjoy, if you want to recreate in the water, if you want to go surfing after it rains, if you want to, um, I live about 10 minutes walk to Lake Michigan. We love going to the beach with our dog. If it rains, we just wait. So it, it heals itself, but it's um, it's not going to get better without some serious intervention. I was going to say that must be a very different experience for you, knowing what you know. <laughs> to choose to get into that water knowing what you know, and or let's say it's raining and you watch some Yahoo just going gung-ho into the lake, and you're like, no! 
Uh, because ignorance is surely bliss on this topic. Well, one of the things that I've long believed is that a lot of opportunity for both personal growth and even to make money and for career growth is to do something that's really unsexy. If you want to be a TikTok influencer, good luck. There's about three billion other people who are trying to do that. Very few people are thinking about infrastructure. And of that group, very few people are thinking about something like sewage, even though it is clearly this massive problem. So what made you decide to get into this and to study it and to try to build an organization around it and all of that? Ooh. Well, it has evolved over time. Uh, the the beginning, to some extent, of my career, which is not you know irrelevant to the reasons why I still do what I do, really goes back to, for me, freshman year of college when I really wanted to quit engineering. So I have a bachelor's in civil environmental engineering, a master's in civil environmental. I just defended my PhD in it. It's like way more engineering degrees than someone needs. Yeah. But when you just like love what you're doing and the opportunities present itself, I know that with this knowledge and resources, I can't affect change. So, you know, we just kept going. Um, but at the very beginning, I almost quit engineering because it is very hard. And I was 18 and I didn't like that level of challenge. It didn't make sense to me. And I, um, I have a father who worked in higher ed for most of his career. And he kind of saw that like puzzled look on 18 year old me. He was like, I just want instant gratification. I want something to make sense right now. And he was like, I know you want to make a change. I know you want to affect change, but you can't do it if you don't have a skill. And it was just the most practical thing I'd heard at the time. And my that, you know, that was all I needed was a reason to to really work hard, to make it make sense, to make the the hard work make sense and make um, what would be the outcome worth it, I guess. And I really started working with Engineers Without Borders at Marquette University, where I've done my degrees, that I mean, right away I traveled with them for some Katrina relief work um, right away that end of that first semester. I've done a number of trips and projects, water distribution projects abroad. And that love really started with this, this understanding of the way that water projects connect people, the way that water infrastructure connects people. So I'm a very social person. It's, a, it's not typical of most engineers <laughs> or when people think about engineers, but that's what I love about the water component of it because it, it's, it's inherently social and it connects people and it should be a gathering place. So all of these water bodies that we love and enjoy and, and have built so much of the culture, especially here in Milwaukee, we're on three rivers in one of the Great Lakes. It should always be something that we protect so that we can keep gathering around it. So as my career progressed through doing drinking water projects with Engineers Without Borders to then graduating during a recession and not having opportunity to work in water anymore, getting into solid waste, which is not something that you can build passion around easily. <laughs> um, but I learned a lot. And then I came back to grad school for what has now become the technology of Rapid Radicals, of the company Rapid Radicals Technology. And I started this work with my academic advisor from undergrad. He had his basement flood in 2010 due to the storm events in Milwaukee at the time. And we thought there's got to be a solution for this. So we had written a proposal with the sewerage district and some other utilities in the Great Lakes region. It got funded. We got proof of concept for this 30-minute detention time, which is, a, you know, is 20 times faster than conventional wastewater treatment. And everything about my love of, of water and of infrastructure, thinking I would go into drinking water, but seeing it more in this wet weather space made 
just everything I loved about it started kind of coming together because there's such a huge socioeconomic impact of sewer overflows. The communities that are often impacted by it are in downtown regions, are in impoverished regions in, within the city. So if they have a basement backup or if there's you know sewage in the rivers near them, which may be a recreational space for them, it's much harder for those communities to bounce back. So there's a socioeconomic side of it. There's this neglect of infrastructure that could be related to that. It's just so much bigger than just designing technology and pipes. I often say technology is the easiest part of solving the problem. And I found myself smack dab working on a problem that truly technology is the easiest part. And it's all the other sides of it wow. that are that need to come together. So I've loved that kind of that journey along the way to understand where I can have the best impact and see how sort of see how all the aspects I've learned coming this far in my career can aid in my ability to see the bigger problem. Not just can we treat the water, not just can we get the contaminants out of the river, but what's the bigger problem here at play and how can we affect change within that? That's so interesting and so specific. And for a very visceral exemplification of this, one need only see the film Parasite. Are you familiar with that film? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that pretty much illustrates, at least in some scenes, everything that you just talked about. Also, yeah. they're low on the social status. They're below the street. What happens? A giant storm comes. and That's one of the most horrifying moments of that whole film, in my opinion. So it is clearly this, this was is a, a great, nasty thing. Yeah, yeah, this was a great word for that because it is a great visual demonstration of it, not something that people typically see, especially, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a great example just to show something that you don't think about all the time and how insanely impactful that is. I mean, if that happens to your home, that's not something you recover oh, from overnight. It'd be horrifying on so many levels. Just water damage, just regular right. old water damage seems like a nightmare. Now, couple that with something else and you've got truly, I mean, it's a horror film. It's just awful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, the, it's what a lot of people live. It's a yeah. fear that exists when it rains. And it's interesting. I feel like I sort of grew up, um, you know, you get these like rainy day cozies. You're like, let's get a cup of soup. We're not going outside. We'll watch a movie. Yeah. We'll snuggle. And now when it rains, my mind goes in so many different places. Part of that is because as soon as I became a homeowner, we had a huge storm here. <laughs> and I was like, wow, rainy days used to be oh, exciting God. and like cozy. <laughs> and now yeah. I'm like checking my basement Bend every five minutes. And thinking about all the people in the city who who really have, you have no idea when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, if it's going to happen to you. And that's, a, again, a lot of what we're working on is not just the technology, but how can we help experts predict it? Or can we work with the experts who can predict sort of when overflows occur or who track, you know, when rain is going to fall or where it's going to fall and work with those data scientists to strategically implement technology that can really solve a targeted problem. You know, when, when I was much younger, before I was pretty sure that I was going to be an idiot for the rest of my life, and I briefly <laughs> considered the idea of becoming a doctor, I remember looking into it a little bit. This is many, many, many years ago. And I looked into surgery, and I saw some images and some footage of actual surgery, and I thought immediately, nope, 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 
walk very, very far away from that. Meanwhile, I have a friend who is now going to med school who walks straight towards that stuff. Most of us look at Parasite and all we can think about is how can I get me and my family to higher ground? How can I get myself as far away from that personally as possible? Very few people see the opportunity in these kinds of very unsexy things. What kind of personality do you think it takes to not only <laughs> identify that there's something to be solved there, but to go towards it instead of just to run away from it and go la 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 and just never think about it ever again? <laughs> what type of personality does it take to run towards poop? I, you know, I've never thought about it that way, but um, <laughs> I think there's a... For me, a lot of it comes with this recognition that I have been provided for by my family, by my community. I've been given so many opportunities, and it's my responsibility. I think this of all engineers. We have a social responsibility to take the skills that we've learned and apply them to big problems and solve them. It's not, it's not just to have the steady job, and that's, you know— that's not a reflection on anyone else's career choices by any means, but for me, that's how I see it. I see it as a social responsibility. I want to run towards the problem because I know I have a skill that can help. I think about this, I was just actually at a at a concert recently where someone, it was hot, everyone was staying around for a long time, and someone had very unfortunately passed out, and there was a woman, she, was, she had like a white claw in her hand, and she was running, she was like, ER nurse, ER nurse, ER nurse, running towards the scene. That's she's what I'm got talking this, about. That's yeah, she's got this talking. skill. Everybody else she's is running like, away. This is yep. my moment, and I can help, and, and I've, been, I've been training for this. That's exactly how I see it. I've been given a lot of opportunity in my life. It's important for me to take that and, and solve a big problem with it, and not trying to find a problem to solve so that I can feel useful, but understanding the, the problems That's that me. exist, <laughs> understanding the problems that exist and then matching yeah. my skill set with the problems that exist so that we can solve them. I have this sort of, you know, if, if you get excited about something and because I've been given lots of opportunities to, to get degrees and to be exposed and to travel and to see and meet other people and kind of expand my mindset in that sense. I find the things that I'm really passionate about. So um, travel, international development, uh, wastewater engineering, wastewater infrastructure. And then I get to expose myself to it more and work on that skill. And the more time I spend on it, the better I get at it. And the better I get at it, the more fun I have doing it. So I spend more time on it, so I get better at it. So I find this cycle that works for me. And I have also then developed this passion for trying to create those opportunities for other people who work for me or around me or who are contracted to do work for our company, students I work with, just trying to find that ability or that cycle that makes sense for them. What are they excited about? How can I how can I learn what excites them and then create opportunities so that they can get better at the thing that they're excited about? So then they'll better at it, so they'll spend more time on it, they'll get better at it, and then and then it continues to perpetuate this or grow this this beautiful cycle of of talent, of skill and and desire and passion to to do something good with the time that we have. Well, first of all, I want to say White Claw Nurse Brigade, stand up. <laughs> Three people in the audience are like, yeah. 
Good job. But second of all, it everything awesome. you just said is awesome. I love the concept of social response. I mean, I feel that. Some people feel that. Others don't. And like you said, to each their own. Not everybody's on the same wavelength. And we can't expect that. To quote Caddyshack, the world needs ditch diggers too, right? It's mm-hmm. uh, It takes all walks of life. But for a certain type of person who's aware of these problems, it does seem to be that there is a propensity to say, okay, what can I do and how can I contribute? Which is a very noble thing. So we glossed over maybe the biggest selling point of what you've done, which you said, okay, normally this stuff takes eight hours to process. We can do it in 30 minutes. What is the traditional path? What is different about your approach and how did you end up there? Well, the technology itself, it's always, it it was developed under the kind of with the idea in mind that there are some existing high rate technologies. So just from a technology dive for a second, there are some existing known or yeah, some known high rate technologies and they, they exist for their own purposes. But if we combine them, we can make everything happen faster. So the, the idea again came with working with my academic advisor, Dan Zittimer and thinking there's these technologies that exist. They've never been combined before we can work on them in a lab setting with support from utilities to make sure that what we're doing. So this was a really important thing for me, and I do believe this is part of what helped the technology itself be successful in the research phase, is that I came from industry. I was in consulting for three years, and when I went back to grad school, I didn't want to sit in a lab and just do fundamental research. There, I have great respect for those who do fundamental research, who, who are you know, finding new molecules or or literally developing new, understanding new mechanisms for treatment, whatever that might be. But I really wanted to take it from that practical approach. And we were funded by some industry university collaborative research dollars. So I knew I'd have that industry focus and that the thing that we were working on would be practical and applicable. So it gave this background to all of the research that I did, that we did, that it had to have some practical approach. We had to consider the operational challenges, which you typically don't do when you're doing fundamental graduate research. But I appreciated that. It was important to me. It helps me understand the impact of it better and like really get into it. So the technologies that were that we utilized, one of them is, is sort of known within the space of wet weather treatment, which is uh, it's called chemically enhanced primary treatment. So you knock out solids that are in wastewater really quickly. And we know if we could combine that with another known technology called advanced oxidation processes, which is the development of, bear with me, which is the development of something called the hydroxyl radical, which is the strongest oxidant known to science. The more you produce, the it's faster you It's also the name of my them. band. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, the hydroxyl radical. But that's yeah, where love- rapid radicals came from. We rapidly produce radicals. Uh, of course. Right. Well, yeah, I know you knew that, Ross. I just no, I didn't know anything. My brain is the size of a peanut. I just nod and smile like I understand. I'm just trying to make you feel good. I have no clue what you're talking about. It sounds great, though. Uh, But that's so. It's it's essentially combining those two types of technologies, and then in doing that, we developed um, our own proprietary type of of oxidation process. But the idea sort of came with if we can if we can make the oxidation aspect happen more efficiently by removing physically and therefore cost-effectively these big solids and big organics through that first primary treatment step, then the advanced oxidation process that people often think is very costly 
becomes quite cost competitive with conventional treatment. And the other thing I'll say is that conventional wastewater treatment has for over 100 years been a biological process and it works really well, but it takes at least six hours because it's bugs. Bugs move slowly. Microorganisms are amazing. Okay. It's, it's yeah. fascinating what they can do to break down organics, to convert um, nutrients. It's, it's an, an incredible process, but it's not a process particularly compatible with a large rush of water during a storm event because they can't really eat any faster. <laughs> and if we bypass the biological, then we, then we miss out on some of that really good treatment that happens. And that's not a process we really want to be implemented regularly. So again, we're, ex- we're taking advantage of these known technologies, combining them in a way that's never been done before, making them better in a way that is practical to the industry. And then the effluent or the outcome, the water quality that leaves our treatment system meets Clean Water Act permit requirements. And that's always been the expectation. We never went into this thinking, oh, we'll do a good job. Oh, we'll do an okay treatment job. We'll build something that's like maybe sort of kind of it's great. This was, if we're going to do it, we're going to go above and beyond. But we're going to go above and beyond in a way that is still cost effective and practical. Because again, it doesn't matter. Any engineer can design the coolest thing you've ever seen. I could design... We could design a type of treatment that can get rid of everything. It's easy peasy, but it's not going to be cost effective. No one's going to buy it. It's not going to be easily implementable. It's what we would consider an inappropriate technology. So everything that we've been developing is with this mindset of an appropriate technology to the wastewater problem, to the sewer overflow problem. And in doing so, or in order to do so, we talk to, you know, we've talked to over 250 stakeholders within this space. What are your problems? What keeps you up at night? What are your pains? What gains do you need from a technology or from a process or what barriers to adoption exist? And we took that approach immediately. So we kind of get to leapfrog as we develop the tech. What, what do people need? What do operators need? How far away, like how big is the wrench an operator needs to be able to get in between a wall and the valve that we're implementing? And are we taking into the in, taking that into account as we develop it so that that operator is like, oh, this system is making my life easier? Yeah. Well, so the so valve that's you it in a nutshell. Where does this physically? No, it's, it's it's fantastic. Where does this physically take place? Storms happen. What's going on? Are you before it gets to the lake? Describe the actual flow there. So the outfall is where, now this, it's a great question in terms of understanding civil infrastructure. When we built our cities, you know, geez, I mean, especially if you're looking at the East Coast, like oh, well over a hundred years ago, we put a lot of things in one pipe, which made sense at the time. And then we, and then we sent it down to a river or a lake or a body of water. Basically it's like become someone else's problem. But the problem is that everyone's it. That's the American downstream. way. It brings a <laughs> just, tear to my eye. I think we should just put an American flag. Hey, I don't got to worry about it. Just stamp made in the I USA. Yeah. <laughs> God yeah. bless America. <laughs> the reality is that everyone's downstream is someone else's upstream. So we quickly learned that we couldn't just do that. However, we'd already sort of built an infrastructure that that then was... I'll, you know, to say it technically, was hydraulically designed to discharge water at certain locations so that it wouldn't back up into people's basements. So you have all these outfalls within an area, whether it's a combined sewer system like Milwaukee and over 800 cities in the U.S. where you have both sanitary sewage and stormwater running in the same pipe. 
that's where these problems can be really bad because, as you can imagine, stormwater, sewage with our aging infrastructure, those pipes become overburdened very quickly. So that's one problem. Even in separate sewer systems, you've got outfalls just so that you don't have basement backups. But those outfalls typically release right into that body of water. So again, whether it's the river, whether it's the lake, whether it's the ocean, our technology would be placed either exactly at that outfall. And that's why we've, when I've talked about this, this rapid treatment time, that's the whole point of it. Because the quicker the treatment happens, the smaller your footprint can be. And for this, for solving the problem of, of wet weather, you know, urban wet weather flows, essentially, it has to be within a small footprint because the problem occurs in space-constrained urban environments. And interestingly, you know, even like 15 years ago here in Milwaukee, the rivers weren't necessarily this like hot commodity. Access to the river wasn't really something people were seeking. But the sewers district and the city have done a great job of cleaning up the rivers and making it a place that you do want to be near. So now we've got less real estate to continue trying to solve this problem that's just going to get worse. Um, and it's a little bit more expensive. So that's one idea is, is essentially that it's an end of pipe system where that pipe opens up into a body of water. We can build a small footprint treatment system. We could also look at it from what we would consider a sewer shed approach. So like the whole service area. And you would essentially take maybe five of these outfalls, back them up a little bit behind the river, gather them into one sort of decentralized wastewater treatment facility, and then you're solving a bigger problem and you're also maybe able to take up a little bit more space. But every city is different. So we're solving a problem that is unique to the geography, to the, you know, the demographics of the city, the, the economic situation of the city. Which for me is fascinating because it means we just have to take all that into account. From a business model perspective, it gets challenging because it's, it's unique per customer, if you would. Um, but that's how it has to be. You know, that's how we have to look at it. You mentioned that at the beginning, and I do want to get into that in just one second. But it does remind me of the fact that we've perceived nature. You said we haven't always been so interested in recreating on the lakes and on the rivers. And it reminds me of reading, I think it was the book Titan that chronicles the life of Rockefeller, if I'm not mistaken, in Ohio and Standard Oil. And it talks about a, a period of time where the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland mm. was just on fire. The entire river caught mm. fire <laughs> because people were just yeah. dumping crap into it. Uh, you know, chemicals, whatever, who cares? It's just a river. And then only recently did people sort of say, hey, maybe we should use them for something other than that. When do you think that, that shift began? I do want to get into the price point thing, but when do you think the shift began from maybe we should think about these types of assets and spaces in a different way? Because clearly it wasn't, say, 120 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the Cuyahoga lighting on fire is there's a handful of environmental landmark cases like that or, or historic events like that. The Cuyahoga River lighting on fire was really the beginning of the Clean Water Act and, and around the same time as the EPA being formed. Um, and it's a great question to when, because it's hard to think now. I mean, we love like living on water, having like water property is such a status so symbol. Yeah. So desirable. And it it wasn't always, especially in these Rust Belt cities. So from the Great Lakes region perspective, it's it's clear from a development, from the development of the economies that industry had to be paramount. 
we had to build and whatever came off of what we built just had to go away. And that could be in whatever way you wanted to. I mean, and that's not just the manufacturing that was going on or the manufacturing waste that led to the Cuyahoga being lit on fire. But, you know, we're going back even um, further to when Chicago was having cholera outbreaks because the drinking water was, their wastewater was also their drinking water. The same source was, right. you know, in Lake Michigan. Yeah. So they dug the, the sanitation canal and now they, and they reversed the flow of the Chicago River so that their wastewater would go down to the Mississippi and become St. Louis's problem. And as if you ever make that T-shirt, by the way, if you ever make somebody else's downstream as somebody somebody else's upstream, if you put that on a T-shirt, I will be one of the ten people that buy it from you. I love that. (laughs) That's a nerd joke. So many catchphrases. And now I'm on the inside. Now I'm on the inside. One of the taglines we thought about for our our new pilot that we're we're building right now was um, we just wanted to have like a cool tagline for it, and we were like, uh, I I mean, you've already referenced um, uh, Adam Sandler once, but. Uh, in Happy Gilmore, when when yes. Shooter goes, I eat pieces of shit like you for breakfast. Like you for breakfast. You eat shit for breakfast? Are you yeah. eat shit, pieces of shit for breakfast? We're like, we just would be like, we eat pieces of shit for breakfast. Like the rapid radicals treatment system. Yes. That's what we do. <laughs> so we've got taglines galore. Nerd humor, um, nerd humor at its best. Puns. I love it. Poop jokes. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, course. I think it's it's a really great question to think like, when did that when did that mindset shift? Come in, and there's a lot of pieces. Again, when you look at like the beginning of the EPA, um, Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, our understanding of of DDT of these chemicals. I think it's it was that a lot of things started happening around that same time that we were becoming better at talking about them and letting that the information that we were gathering essentially access more people in mass. I mean, obviously the internet wasn't around yet, but. Whatever we could do, we were becoming more mobile. We were sharing information. So the, the, the magnitude of the problem was finally starting to be understood. It wasn't just that the Cuyahoga was lighting on fire. It was that birds weren't, like the, the shells were too weak. Birds weren't surviving into the spring. All these things were starting to happen. And as they came together and people were rightfully pissed off, there was a movement in mindset. And you could say that about so many of the movements that we've ever seen, it's, it's, uh, I believe it's a Margaret Mead quote that um, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. I mean, I think yeah. about that all the time. It's a beautiful we're, sentiment. We're, I think about it too. Yeah. It, it's We're doing the best that we can with what we have. And once you learn something, you can't unlearn it. You can't, once you test for it, you got to do something about it. Once you gather that data, you have that information, you have a responsibility to act on it. So I think there was there was this movement of like, oh my God, I can't believe that we did this. And it's crazy to have then see all of these efforts trying to undo what we did that led to so much of so many of the the disasters between like, you know, the 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, those landmark environmental cases. And see, I, I was under the impression, though, that with... everything – I was under the impression that everything that we did in the past was perfect. See, we were great. Uh, there was I'm so an sorry ideal I time. I want to tell you. Yeah, it's no, but everything was perfect. Everything is perfect. We don't need to change. Let's just keep going. <laughs> yeah. Let's, Let's just, just keep sending it down the Mississippi. goes. Let's just keep burying that radioactive waste. It, it, it'll, you know – 
it'll be fine. That's it'll been be the, uh, it, it, it seems cliche at this point, but of course, again, it is a profound shift. And that word you keep using, responsibility, what could be more unsexy than the word responsibility? <laughs> totally. It's not like, Ugh. there's not like drug, sex, and rock and roll, and then responsibility. Yeah, responsibility <laughs> isn't jet skiing on, on a lake. It's not having yeah, actually, my own the private oil yacht that's too big to fit to... through a Dutch canal. Like, responsibility, that's a poor person's problem. The more money that I make, that means that I have less of an obligation to be irresponsible, right? Oh the my gosh, I am. I, I have earned the right to not be responsible anymore. That's why I want to be a billionaire so bad. You hit, I, I, I appreciate and obviously resent that you're saying that right now <laughs> because it's so true. It really is. It's, it's the luxury. It, it is a privilege of status to not have to worry because you can, you can pay if you live in an area that floods, you can just pay to live on a hill. I'm just going to live on a hill. I mean, that's, exa that's exactly what we saw happen during Katrina and all those low-lying areas compared to, like, yeah. that was such a stark yeah. contrast. Um, it, but without a doubt, that's, I think that's where so much of the mindset has gone of like, oh, if I can just, it does not become my problem anymore. <laughs> It's it's my downstream, and I don't have to think about it if I don't want to. And I have the luxury of continuing to live my life, continuing to to take care of my family. I think one thing I've I've been frustrated about with sort of the, you know the sustainability movement is that yeah obviously it shouldn't become politicized, but it did. Climate change does not. It's not you don't get to choose to believe it or not. It is a scientific fact. Um, you can just decide to. Uh, to act on that fact or ignore it, but you don't get to believe in it or not. That's not how facts work. But I feel like we, like sustainability from this sense, and this goes back to the responsibility component of it and this idea that we can sort of like, you know, wipe our hands clean if we choose to or if we have the status enough to do so or, or the means to do so. But when we talk about sustainability, it's not this like, this tree hugger lifestyle that, that, has that it's been made out to be again like since the 70s sustainability is just meaning that the generation after us has the same means or even more means the resources that they need to continue thriving so if we want to talk about sustainability as anything it's just a it's a family cause if i want my kids to swim in the river if i want my kids to breathe clean air then it's my responsibility like mother nature will take care of herself I mean, she's just like waiting for this next cycle of idiots to run out and then she's going to take one big yep. deep breath and she's going to heal. But our kids won't yeah. and our kids' kids won't. And that's the thing that's always frustrating me. It just feels like there was a PR miss on that. I mean, we saw what happened in the, you know, in the first even year, if not going into the second year of the height of the pandemic of how much the ozone, the whole ozone layer was, was closing up and yeah, animals like were like, oh, reduction my God. in emissions. Yeah. People not yeah. commuting. It had an impact. What? Who She'll would heal. have possibly <laughs> guessed? Who would have guessed that not driving your car for a year might change something? And Just what wild. A, what a what a hard reality that it is a man-made change. Oh, like oof, man, yeah, right. didn't see that coming. Bummer. Well, it's just but, it's just so fascinating because we talked about these pipes, right? So, like, you can't in some in some ways, I think you can fault the previous generations in some ways, but in other ways, humanity is progress, and we're doing our best. You might argue, if you're being generous, that the past generations did their best, and that the best that they knew what to do was to put it all in a single pipe, rainwater, sewage in a single pipe, and that was how they 
thought to solve a problem which was previously, let's say some centuries before, not solved at all. So you might give them the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, that was the best that they could. You might, which may be a bit overly, overly nice. However, what I think is so interesting is that there are such a large group of people who seem to think that progress should have stopped or that like tell these people to go back to using a Nokia phone from 2007 as their primary phone. And they'll think you're, you're an idiot. Like obviously the iPhone 14 pro is better in every single way. It's like, well, why should we accept the way that we thought to handle sewage and wastewater a hundred years ago as being the best way when your phone is obsolete two years later, it's not a matter of even necessarily judgment or any of that or politics. It's just a matter of saying, Let's use what we know now, and can we do better? Because the answer is almost always yes, we can do better. Right. Do we want to do better, I suppose? And I think that's the that's such a challenge when it comes to mat- matters like this, because you're not working, again, you're not working on the technology problem. You're working on the behavior challenge. How do we get, how do we understand the behavioral economics or the behavioral science of someone's willingness to spend more on a phone or on a phone plan than they will for clean water to come to their home safely and sewage to be taken away from their home. That's something that- Ah, Great segue. You picked up on something that I forgot about. Now we got to talk about the price. I almost dropped it. I almost (laughs) dropped the thread. Let's talk about why price is a part of this and who has to pay that price. Yes, let's. Do you have an answer and can you solve that problem? Give me five minutes, but first you have to explain what the problem is. (laughs) Uh, yeah, it's the, I talked about sort of like the, the PR challenges with like the sustainability perspective. And I feel the same way about the value of water. At some point we, we charged people based on the amount of water that you use, but realistically water, water as it exists around us is free. I mean, the, the, the provision or the access to, to water is a human right, without a doubt. And for people, let's say here in Milwaukee, if you really want clean water, but you don't want to pay for it, you can go to Lake Michigan and you can grab that water. And honestly, the, the, the lake is, is a great source of water, but a lot of things go, run off into the lake. So in terms of consuming it regularly, you probably still need to do a little bit of treatment. So in that perspective, what you're paying for every three months or whatever your billing cycle is, is not necessarily the gallons of water that you use. It is the provision of that water to your home safely. It is the treatment. It's the infrastructure. It's all these things that you can't see. And therefore, it's, imp- it's so challenging for humans. <laughs> I think it's a human nature thing. If you can't see it, if you can't hold the problem in your hand, that you have a hard time understanding how you can participate in or therefore why it should matter to you. So I struggle with this a lot because it really isn't about the value. The value of water is not necessarily tied up in the gallons that you use. It's it's the infrastructure provision to you. And then, I mean, you can look at the externalities of that economic analysis as much as you want. If you have water that's come safely to your home, you can brush your teeth, you can shower, you can go to work. You can... Um, you can safely consume the water that's provided to you in your home so that you don't get sick, so that you can go to work, so that you can get, so that you can keep your job, so that you can feed your family. I mean, there's just so much that goes into that. And it's not just about the number of gallons that come to your home or that leave your home. And that's, that's something that I think 
that's something that in the water industry and in the water sector, we're really trying to figure out how's, what's a better way to talk about the value of water that almost takes the value, the, the monetary value away from it so that we can talk about it freely as this like incredible, precious resource, this human right, the way that it deserves to be talked about. And then say, yes, it's this beautiful thing that exists, that's always existed, if we want to take care of it, however, we have to pay for it. And then it just gets uncomfortable. There's that that leap that just makes people so, that accountability and that that economic component of it, that that people just, you know, it just... We miss it. We're missing something. Yeah. And in case anybody out there is sick, I've always said, here's a life hack for you. Just go grab a cup of lake water. Odds are it has the pharmaceutical that you're looking for in there for free. (laughs) So it'll probably make you better. Might even get a little bit of radiation treatment in there sprinkled in as well. You never know if you get extra lucky. But yes, and I think one of the things that detractors, and again, I think this is a bad faith argument, but when it comes to stuff like food, there's often a case, and this is, you could say, the problem with the sustainability movement or some of these ideas is that they often cost more. Organic produce costs more than not organic. It's typically a price decision. And some people, detractors, and again, I think this is bad faith, but they would argue that that price thing makes it classist, or we shouldn't adopt these things because there's a price thing, rather than seeing it as a stepping stone towards we have to start somewhere. And today, this is going to cost a little more. But of course, as we scale these things, that will no longer be the case. How do you think from a PR standpoint, we overcome that hurdle of more expensive equals either unfair or something that is just a non-starter right out of the gate. Hmm. <laughs> if I had an answer to that, I would probably also have a different job doing something much higher up <laughs> than building a technology. It's a, a fantastic question and... I don't know that we've done in the in the way that we seek to solve this problem, we've made too many assumptions without talking to people enough or without engaging in enough conversation around it. I completely agree and without a doubt, yeah, like the the challenges with, you know, if you want to eat better food, if you want to eat fresh food, you got to pay for it. There's, there's obviously something there with, you know, the economic models and the business models that, that lend itself to that. But when we talk about how do we help out other individuals in our community, how do we create, again, create an infrastructure that is equitable, something that we talk, again, a lot about in the water sector right now. The workforce in the water sector is already pre- predominantly white, predominantly male, predominantly even predominantly Christian, predominantly older. And we're working on creating a workforce that looks more like the communities that we serve. And the better that we do to create that more equitable workforce, or again, that workforce that maybe has better perspectives of the people that we seek to serve, the hope is that we're gathering the proper perspectives to help us understand where the challenges exist in someone who can afford to spend a little bit more per month on their water bill and someone who cannot. 
And there's obviously a component of choice in that. So if you want to go to the store and you want to buy organic food, that is the choice that you have. We already have a, like the, the food crisis and the hunger crisis within the States is a whole nother thing. But it's still this, can we just, can the, can the most accessible thing that we provide, whatever that might be, whether it's food for me, whether it's, it's water, infrastructure, reliable infrastructure, can the least expensive, most affordable thing still be the very, very best? Is, that's what we're trying to solve right now. Can we create a technology? And I, I'll just speak to this from the perspective of what we're doing at Rapid Radicals and the perspective that we're trying to take on it is we know that in order to build something, it has to be cost effective. The last thing we want to do is to develop a technology that's, that's good, that demonstrates to, let's say, the regulatory agencies that that's exactly what they should be adopting. And then all of a sudden, they're forced and required to do something or they're mandated to do something that they can't afford, that their communities can't afford, that their ratepayers can't afford. So we have to keep that in mind as we innovate. So it makes it less, it makes it a little bit less sexy. And I say a little bit less sexy because I obviously think that this is such a sexy topic. Anyways, it's the most sexy it thing in the it, world. Yeah. It's the sexiest thing in the world. I agree. It makes it a little yeah. less sexy when you you have those financial constraints on it. But right. it goes back to the the can the best that we provide people, or rather, can the most affordable thing we provide be the best? And that doesn't have to be in everything else in the world, right? It doesn't have to be in clothes. It I mean, it should be in food, but it doesn't necessarily have to be in phones. It doesn't have to be in all these other aspects of the world's of of the the material things or even the services that we interact with on a regular basis. But can water, can water infrastructure, can the best that we can the can the most affordable thing be the best? And that's a standard that as professionals we're trying to to raise up to so that that's that becomes the standard. And we can't do that without other people in the country, the ratepayers, the the politicians, the regulators coming along with us for that. We all have to get to a point where we say the most affordable thing, the least common denominator affordability is still the absolute best. And it's not impossible. It's just the reality that we've been trying to solve this problem in a silo. And we have to be way more interdisciplinary on it. We can't We've got to bring in all those different stakeholders and engage people in this conversation. So obviously this is an ongoing challenge for you, for me, for everybody. It's an ongoing battle. But you mentioned earlier a little bit that the goal is to make your team feel a sense of excitement about the future and the feeling of getting better. So to what degree has pursuing this mission imbued your life with a sense of meaning or a sense of purpose, especially in those moments where everything gets difficult? Oof. It goes back to it goes back to a lot of the conversations that I've had with people as I've been developing the technology. And that goes into all these different stakeholders that I just talked about and these, you know, a hundred plus interviews that I've done, customer discovery interviews, market research that I've done on my own, and then the the many, many more that the rest of my team has done since we have really built a a value to those conversations. There's a few that I've had in the last six years since I found the company, seven years now, that really stick with me, that remind me that everything that we're working on is so much bigger than me. And there's, some days I let that be grace for me. I get up, I do the best that I can. 
I fight for something I believe in. I work really hard, you know, inventing things. You don't have any answers. You make them up as you go um, and engage people along the way. There's days where sometimes realizing that I'm just a small piece in this really big puzzle and that the problem is so much bigger than me feels good. Feels like, okay, well, if, if I don't hit everything today, it's okay. I'm making the, I'm making the next, I'm moving towards the next best thing. I'm, I'm making a step forward. Um, it really is about the people and the communities that, that we've worked in, the people that we've talked to, the, the basements that we've seen flooded. Those conversations and those stories keep it moving forward. And there's a vision for me for this company. Again, our, our vision for Radicals is that, you know, that really we're in pursuit of a world where there is an appropriate solution to every wastewater problem. And that a dream for me is that eventually we've developed this technology to a point where it is also an appropriate technology outside of a developed country, where that's really where my worlds start colliding in all the international development work that I've done Uh, and where we see like the sanitation challenges really, um, really equaling where, where the lack of sanitation, the lack of sort of wastewater services really, really correlates to a, a poor quality of life. So I'll just, the simple answer the, the end of a long answer to your question is is people. It's my team. It's seeing them get excited about something. It's remembering that there's other, all these other people who are committing their careers or at least portions of their careers to help this move forward. And yeah, knowing that it's bigger than me. Like sometimes you have to believe that you're the one to do it. You're the best to, to bring this thing to market or the best to solve this problem to get you going. But once the wheels are in motion, it is a beautiful thing to feel like a small cog in this big in this big effort that we're working on well i appreciate your small cogness i appreciate (laughs) what you're doing it's a fascinating story it's a fascinating subject thank you very much for sharing your wisdom uh we're at the end of our hour obviously so is there anything that you would like to promote or where can people find you and support your work and of course buy that t-shirt everybody's (laughs) downstream is somebody else's upstream Honestly, we got to get on that. Well, thank you, uh, Ross, for for helping me tell the story and for promoting this story. There's, my pleasure. It's an important story to tell. It's not obviously just my story. The problem that we're seeking to solve related to, to pollution, related to environmental protection, public health, water quality, all these big concepts. It's a lot of people's stories. It's a struggle that a lot of people have every day. I'm working on a small piece of it to, to move the state of that to a better place. If you want to learn more about Rapid Radicals technology, our website is just www.rapidradicals.com. We're on the socials. We're learning how to be better about uh, Instagramming and, and trying to find ways to make, honestly, make wastewater sexy. We're really working on it right now to find different ways to tell jokes and stories to make it accessible. Um, so if there's anyone listening who's got an idea, um, I am all ears on that, but you can find us on the socials. We've got some videos available to tell more about the tech and we've got a new pilot project that's launching in about a month and we'll be really active telling that story and engaging people in, in that journey. So please come find us and talk to us and I will talk to anybody about this. So if this is an interest, I think the biggest thing that we can do is keep talking about it. We've seen how powerful that can be in other movements in human history and i i want this to be the next one 
Yep, and and she's not kidding, folks. I'm living proof that she will talk to literally anybody <laughs> about this. So don't take those words lightly. Uh, thanks again. And with that, the official podcast is over. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Beat the Off and Path podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes we've shared, it would mean a great deal to me if you subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice or on YouTube. And of course, if you shared either the show itself or this particular episode with somebody who might want to hear it to help us grow the audience for the show, I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. So if you've been a passive listener all this time, I get it. I understand. There's no big deal with that. But it would really, really mean a lot to me if you leave a positive review and help me grow this show. So thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.